Hi, this is Lindsay Jacobs, your host, and welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Each episode, I have a guest, and we explore a topic that's relevant to the field of Jero Psychology. This is the fourth episode, and if you've had a chance to listen to the first three, you've heard about two careers in geropsychology, specifically what it's like to be a psychologist in a geriatric outpatient mental health clinic and home-based primary care, and you've heard about common clinical issues that come up when providing interventions in an outpatient mental health setting. You may or may not have noticed that this podcasting gig is completely new to me, So I'm learning as I go, and hopefully improving the production with each new episode. In the last episode, Dr. Michelle Malenik so eloquently stated the purpose of the Jero Psychology Podcast. Here's a playback of that. We're all doing a lot of very interesting, cool, scientific, and fruitful things that it would be great to hear from the community collectively. Yeah. And also, I spend a lot of time in my car, as we will talk about. So <laughs> having a Jero Psychology podcast, to adding it to my repertoire is wonderful. <laughs> now, I'd like to hear from you all. I'm certain you are doing amazing clinical work, research, and writing in Jero Psychology. If there's a specific topic that you'd like to hear on this show, or if you have any interest in coming on to share your work, please visit the website at www.thejeropsychologypodcast.com and leave me a message. The podcast is now up on Apple Podcasts. Sharing it in Apple Podcasts has two really great advantages. One, it allows you, the listener, to subscribe to it. Once you subscribe, you should get automatic updates in your Apple Podcast app that lets you know when a new episode is available. And the second advantage, it allows me to get feedback from you, the listeners, in the form of stars and comments. As psychologists or psychologists in training, we all know the benefit of receiving feedback, especially if it's positive and or constructive. I'd love to hear from you, so pop on over and leave me a comment or a rating. Another great way to keep up with the postings of new episodes is to follow me on Twitter at The Jero Podcast. Now, without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Dr. Michelle Malenak joins me again, and this time we talk about quality improvement, education, and training, and why it's important in Jero psychology. Dr. Michelle Malenak is a staff psychologist at VA Boston Healthcare System and an assistant professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. For the past 10 years, she's worked in home-based primary care at VA Boston, providing clinical services to homebound older adults and their families. She supervises students, interns, and fellows in geropsychology practice. Dr. Malenak is board certified in clinical geropsychology, and she serves on the executive board of the American Board of Geropsychology. Her research has been in the areas of decision-making capacity, integrated care, and geropsychology training. Please note that the views expressed in today's podcast are our own and do not represent the views of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the U.S. government. So I have Michelle Malinek on with me today, and we're going to be talking about quality improvement and more specifically quality improvement in geropsychology. 
And I wonder, Lindsay, maybe we should talk first about how we got interested in thinking about how quality improvement um, might be further introduced or merged or melded into geropsychology work, geropsychology training, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good starting point. Um, so I got interested in quality improvement in graduate school. My mentor, Lynn Snow, was doing research in the nursing home, looking at culture change implementation. And we were using a participatory-based action research model. We involved leadership and, and staff members in the nursing home in the planning of the research. So those I've heard call be called stakeholders. So yes. right, people who would be impacted by your research, you're involving them in the process. Mm-hmm. That feels like very cool. <laughs> it was. It was yeah. so much fun. Yeah. And then... In addition to my clinical psychology program, I also did a a master's program in public health. It was a healthcare organization and policy and outcomes research. And in that program, I learned about the methods of quality improvement. So that's really where my interest sparked. And it sounds like it was something that you really enjoyed doing, too. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was a a lot of fun. And it's something that I have been able to carry with me and, you know, continue to do quality improvement throughout internship and fellowship and now um, as a a staff person. So thank you, Alabama, for (laughs) inspiring that in you. (laughs) I would say for me, it's a little bit different because we had some training in program evaluation in graduate school, but it wasn't really until I was working as a as a geropsychologist in home-based in the VA that I really thought about how quality improvement is part of my daily life. And that's that was really the expectation from my boss, who was our program manager. And that's the model of within home-based primary care across the country. I think in other geriatric settings, that's the same where you're really encouraged in healthcare to be thinking about how quality improvement methods can be utilized to improve patient care. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the path that you're describing, I think, is really consistent with maybe what a lot of people experience in that it's not until internship or fellowship or as a staff person where you really start getting into quality improvement. Or like you mentioned, once you become a staff person in a healthcare organization, you're sort of expected to do this. And so it was really, I think, a, a fortuitous uh, meeting when you came to join our faculty several years back and we uh, commiserated and, and realized we had both been working on quality improvement projects. You had been at Salem VA mm-hmm. and, and had some really cool stuff going on. And uh, our team had been doing some cool quality improvement projects within Homebased and then thought about maybe we should be training our students, <laughs> our trainees, our fellows, our geropsychology fellows and interns and practicum students in this kind of work, but what would that look like? Yeah, yeah. So why don't we start out with talking about what quality improvement is? Because I'm imagining that for our listeners, this might be a new term for them. It it may be a new term, or they think, well, I, I know about research. I have decent research skills, but is that really the same? And we would say yes and no. <laughs> there are similarity, similarities and there are differences. But really, quality improvement is examining ways to improve healthcare in a measurable way. And it's really focusing on the systems and processes that are in place in healthcare, focusing on patients. And it allows us as geropsychologists to use our interdisciplinary, our interprofessional skills, and our understanding and knowledge of data to help the team improve patient outcomes and patient care. Yeah. And I'm 
I'm glad that you mentioned that there is a difference between quality improvement and research because there absolutely is. When we're doing quality improvement, it is typically done within a team of members. You know, ideally with quality improvement and a healthcare organization, you're working in an interdisciplinary team and you're assessing the care that you're providing, right? That your team or that healthcare system is is providing. And it's different because in research, we typically come in with a research question and we have specific measures that we um, we want to use. And our aim is to um, answer this hypothesis that we have about some scholarly question that we have and to then disseminate this information to the large larger research community. And I think we can use that sort of science mind mm-hmm. to our work in quality improvement, but the aim is a bit different. So in quality improvement, it is this focus on the safety um, and the clinical care that we're providing to patients and family members. Irrespective of a scientific knowledge feedback loop that right. we might be involved in if we're pre- participating in research or conducting research. Right. And, you know, it's not to say that when you do a quality improvement project that you can't write that information up and then publish it later because you absolutely can. And there are journals that really seek this type of paper. So to murky the waters even (laughs) more, um, yes, we can publish it later, but it's really separate from a scientific endeavor purely for the value of science. Rather, we're focusing on patient well-being overall. Right. Absolutely. So um, there might be listeners who are wondering if it, maybe they're at jobs and they already have a lot of things on their plate. Why would someone want to take on this additional endeavor to do quality improvement? I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons that someone might want to do this, but one of them is that it's allowing ourselves a time to step back and say, as a healthcare community, why are we doing what we're doing and is it even working? Which I think is a critical key question, right, that we want to ask. So we may have over the years, especially having worked, worked for 10 years in my same role, we fall into patterns of behavior. Are those patterns successful? We can kind of get stuck in a rut. So having a fresh set of eyes on a system to say, like, let's take a step back, let's take a time out and really look at what processes might be working, what processes are not effective over time. Mm-hmm. It can also help us to be in a role of continuous improvement. So we're never going to be a, a perfect system, a perfect healthcare system or perfect healthcare providers, but we want to be able to be engaged in a process that allows for us to improve ourselves and in, in the quality of care that we provide over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, people can start to feel burnt out, um, especially feeling like, okay, what we're doing, we're, we're doing okay, but could we be doing better? Mm-hmm. So quality improvement, I think, also helps to prevent burnout in very stressed healthcare providers because it maybe we can be more efficient. Maybe we don't have to you know, spend all day working on something that may not be that successful. Maybe we can find a better way. Yeah. And I think that's always at, at our hearts as, as psychologists, right? Like, what's the most meaningful? What can we use our analytical skills to find what, what really is a better way? Yeah. And, you know, if you're improving quality and you're tracking that, you're measuring it and you're looking at the data, it can also feel good when we look back <laughs> and we, you know, we see what we're doing is actually making a difference and we are improving. It may also help you to marshal some resources for 
your programs or for your teams, if you can find a better way of doing things, perhaps you can then use that information then to advocate for additional services in your program. For example, maybe you're finding that people are having behavioral issues in your long-term care unit and you can document it and you can find a better way and you may be able to then springboard that into developing a new program, a new model, and be able to bring more resources into your work care, work setting to help patients. Mm-hmm. So I know, Michelle, when we, you and I first started talking about quality improvement training and the differences in experiences in, in training at the graduate level and, and beyond, this started a conversation about how are other disciplines training in QI. There have been a few recently published articles on quality improvement in psychology or quality improvement training in psychology. But it seems like, you know, the disciplines of medicine and nursing are actually doing a really good job of this training so far. I think they're, uh, it's, it's a bigger expectation or more part of the fundamental training that they receive. And so, especially with nursing, I think that's that's been a longstanding part of the role of nurses in healthcare settings is, to fo- is a focus on quality improvement. And I think physicians, psychiatry, other healthcare providers are catching up to that mm-hmm. within a at, at the graduate school level or the medical student level. Um, psychology is recognizing it. I think we've been doing things our own way, but I think within an interdisciplinary, interprofessional team context, we perhaps have not done that quite yet mm-hmm. as well as we could have. Yeah, and we really are as psychologists and geropsychologists set up to. I think, be leaders in this area because we do in graduate school and and beyond get those skills in scholarly thinking that we can really apply to to this area. Another reason that geropsychologists are well suited for this is that the patients that we serve are often vulnerable and also are high, often high utilizers of healthcare. And so this combination means there are many opportunities for improvement. And so geropsychologists may be in a good position to, number one, hear back directly from our patients about an experience they may have had that, have, that has not gone well. And perhaps we can then propel that into a, a discussion or into a quality improvement project that can make care better for when they come in to whatever clinic the next time or um, just improve their overall comfort and the utility of the healthcare services that they're receiving. Mm -hmm. So maybe for the listener, it it would be helpful to hear some examples of quality improvement projects just to illustrate what that looks like. So maybe I'll start with uh, one that we have done on our team over the years in home-based primary care. Our patients are at high risk for falls. And so we were using this tool they call the Morse. But it was really a tool that was developed for an inpatient setting. So if you have a new patient coming into a unit, how do you minimize the risk of their falls in the inpatient setting? Well, that didn't translate as well to the home setting. And also our patients continue to fall. So we this was really led by our physical therapist and our occupational therapist on the team. But we incorporated an interdisciplinary and interprofessional model of including pharmacy, psychology, primary care to think about, number one, finding a new tool. So we use the MOC-10, M-A-H-C-10. 
um, which is a more geriatric, multifaceted evaluation of fall of things that could contribute to fall risk. So okay. polypharmacy, cognitive impairment, visual impairment. Yeah. None of those things really showed up on the Morse, and the Morse only doesn't really change over time is another mm. issue. The Mach 10 actually can tra- change over time, and it also feeds into an interprofessional treatment plan. So we can think of an intervention if the person has visual impairment. Well, we can we can address that if that's what's causing their falls, or if they have a lot of scatter rugs, you know, mm-hmm. around the home, we can address that. Or if they're if somebody just changed one of their medications and it's causing dizziness, we can address that. And it's so, I think as a geropsychologist on the team, I really enjoyed helping to find a better tool. Mm-hmm. That's always fun as a psychologist. Yeah. Um, and also one that really incorporated the whole person. Yeah. Another project, or one that I worked on, it was in primary care. This was at a setting where we had a number of primary care mental health providers, and I was one of those providers. And as a team, we met and we're talking about ways to improve care for the older veterans in these primary care clinics, because the clinics were set up that they just served the general population, not necessarily older adults. And Among the team members, they mentioned that it would be helpful to have some additional training on how to screen for potential cognitive impairment Mm. or when to refer to neuropsychology or neurology for additional testing. And also, when if caregivers came in, how do they or where do they refer these caregivers to if they're experiencing some distress? And so for this quality improvement project, I did a sort of a needs assessment survey to get an understanding of what level of training the providers had, their understanding of neurocognitive risk factors, things to sort of look for in these patients, and how they have been assessing for cognitive impairment if they had uh, so far and how they were documenting it. Because, you know, as a mental health provider in a healthcare setting, um, documentation is so key, especially when you're working in an interdisciplinary team. It's so you, key. Because <laughs> yeah, you want the all of the team members to have access to, to that information. And so what I ended up doing based on the information that I gathered from them was I put together some training materials and provided education on, first of all, uh, the dementia warning signs, when to screen, when to use a screening measure. And we ended up using, we chose to use the MOCA. And in addition to that, we put together a comprehensive but brief template on all of the important factors that you would want to include in in a note and disseminated that note template, and then also met with different services, uh, neuropsychology, neurology, and other services that would be involved potentially in a patient's care should we refer them for additional testing or for caregiver support. After the implementation of that project, screening improved, documentation improved, and also just a general um, feeling of confidence and competence in being able to do this and provide this quality care to patients, that increased among the providers as well. So that was really like an uh, maybe not your explicit aim, but a nice bonus was an opportunity for you to, to disseminate some geropsychology knowledge and build people's skills so that all of the team could be working at their best um, yeah. in terms of caring for these patients and providing them a high level of care and also not putting them through needless things. Right. Absolutely. Well, which is 
who wants to do a test they don't need to do? No one. <laughs> That's great. And so those were kind of two very different but but similar examples of how we have used quality improvement in our work. Mm-hmm. So Lindsay, you had a great training in graduate school in quality improvement methods, but for somebody who didn't have that, maybe we should talk about how somebody could get started in quality improvement. Absolutely. One idea I had is sort of just to plunk yourself in like the immersion method. Um, in our hospital, there are many committees that somebody could be on, including committees that are literally named quality or patient safety <laughs> or something similar. Yeah. And it, it may be some of it is learning by doing. So learning with uh, maybe a nurse mentor or uh, just being part of an interprofessional team to be able to understand this, the bigger systems level that you may not be exposed to as a psychologist working in a clinic setting or, mm-hmm. or what have you. Seeing the bigger hospital system level um, changes that that are going on and areas that people are trying to make interventions, areas of need for quality improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And this has me thinking too, you know, we were talking about how nursing and medicine are, are really sort of leading in this area of quality improvement. Getting a sense of what these disciplines are doing, how that looks, that could be helpful. For people who don't have training in quality improvement, there's some really nice resources on the CDC website, and there's some additional websites I will also provide in the show notes for this podcast if anyone's interested. You know, also keep an ear out for whenever you're in your your interdisciplinary teams or your your teams if you hear anyone say you know i wish i don't understand why this is working this way or some sort of frustration with the way that care is providing or something that's happened that didn't go quite right this is a time when you can put your thinking cap on and that scholarly mind to use and thinking about, okay, well, is this, is this a systemic issue or is this a one-time thing? And if it does become, you're, you realize it's a systemic issue, this is something that you could potentially jump on. That's funny that you should mention that because our HBPC team, every week during our interdisciplinary meeting, at the end, we'll say what could have gone better this week. And what could have gone well. I think that's also important to you. But what could have gone better? And that's been a nice way to sort of uncover things that maybe we're griping about after the meeting, but no one's actually (laughs) raising it to the level of being able to um, make a change around it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's a great that's great advice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another idea I had is we talked to earlier about having a fresh pair of eyes, and I think the beginning of the training year is another opportunity as you're as you're training people who have never been in your system before, perhaps um, who they are more easily able, I think, to point out when things make no logistical sense. Absolutely. But, but we've sort of all become accustomed to them, having worked in the <laughs> setting for however long. Um, so take advantage of that, and and as as um, you know, begin training your trainees right at that moment to be thinking of systems issues that might come up that may not make sense or may be convoluted or complicated or need and needlessly so. Mm-hmm. And um, asking questions is where it starts. So don't be afraid to ask, you know, why is it this way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. <laughs> and also for ourselves, I think, yeah. being able to step back and saying, why, why am I doing this this way? Is it because we've always done it this way? <laughs> we shouldn't be. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in thinking about the sort of the knowledge and skills that geropsychologists would want to have in this area of quality improvement, 
we went to the not only the Pikes Peak model for professional geropsychology, but the Pikes Peak self-assessment tool to sort of get a sense of in that self-assessment tool, how are we having trainees and psychologists measure their level of competency in different domains? And there were a couple of items on the Pikes Peak self-assessment tool that addressed quality improvement more broadly, generally. But, you know, given the importance of quality improvement, we were thinking that, you know, we might talk about some more specific skills and knowledge that geropsychologists might want to have when they're entering the professional world in these healthcare settings. And we're aiming to encourage people to set themselves up to be leaders in quality improvement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at least not freaking out when someone mentions quality improvement or saying, oh boy, what? I know they mentioned that briefly in graduate school, but I don't remember what it was. So, you know, I think just having a general understanding of the importance of quality improvement in healthcare is a good starting off point, which is what Michelle had mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. But I think it's important to understand why healthcare settings engage in quality improvement, the importance of it, which really ties into hospital ratings, quality ratings, that is, and financial incentives, which you had mentioned earlier. And also, this is sort of self-explanatory, but patient care. Patient care. And quality improvement helps us promote that patient-centered care that we all strive to provide. And quality improvement allows us to monitor safety, effectiveness, providing timely care and efficient care to our older patients. And that can be hard to quantify. And sometimes hospitals have their own measures, but we may come up with a better measure. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's where we can also be useful or lend our own expertise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Another thing I think that is important in quality improvement is understanding the impact of the organizational culture on quality improvement efforts and expectations. So like you were saying, Michelle, you were sort of expected to to do this in your role. And it's important to understand that organizational culture and what your team expects of you. And people may assume you already know how to do this, I think is also something we, (laughs) we are hinting at where, oh, you're a psychologist, you, you know, you're science. Or, or you have the background in research, um, so this should be no sweat. And, and actually, it's a different, it's sort of like training your brain in, in a slightly different way. And we have the luxury within VA, but I think this is true in other healthcare organizations, that there are, there are offered trainings from the quality improvement folks in your hospital setting. There are different levels of training that you can get in quality improvement, mm-hmm. but they're more structured or there's a um, geriatric scholars mm-hmm. program or other ways that geropsychologists can get this kind of training. Absolutely. When we think about what does it look like then to disseminate mm-hmm. or what happens after you've done all this work, <laughs> all this quality improvement work, then what do you do with it, Lindsay? <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the important things about quality improvement is that you are looking at the data and you're disseminating this knowledge to the team because they are the stakeholders. Often what you're doing is disseminating to the people who are part of the system that you're working in, right? Mm -hmm. First and foremost, because we want to have that direct and immediate impact on patient care. But there may be other opportunities where you're sharing the work that you've championed. Maybe the hospital has a research day or a poster day around quality improvement like ours does. Or maybe you can start one yeah, (laughs) and learn about all the other quality work that's going on in in your setting. Um, It may be when someone like the Joint Commission for 
healthcare quality comes, you have your beautiful poster <laughs> or all the findings, right? That's often something that they're going to ask about and look at, at least for home care. Right. Um, they're interested in, in knowing what the quality improvement work is that you've had. And then I think beyond that, I think we're interested in our in our geropsychology world around what types of quality improvement interventions are effective and how does that look? How can we change patient care and how can we make meaningful changes in our own setting that maybe could be translated into other settings? Mm-hmm. And so that may be that you're putting together a poster for APA or GSA, or maybe you're, you're writing up a brief summary of what you learned. Maybe you've done a brand new group in your setting that, and you, or you've improved on a group that you're already running and you want to share that information with a journal like qual- clinical gerontologist or mm-hmm. or a quality healthcare journal or things like that if you've done if you made a real impact in your setting we don't want to hide that information we want to we want to be able to share that if you're reducing falls where you work that's important for other healthcare providers to know what your strategies were and maybe they can adopt their their own Right. Absolutely. And disseminating this information more broadly in journals, like you mentioned, I think is really important um, for the progression of quality improvement and geropsychology. Other people read these ideas, these really innovative programs or projects that folks have done, and, and it really can spark an interest and excitement about maybe trying to implement that in their own place. And maybe part of your role as the geropsychologist on the team is that you've written many manuscripts, so you can even drive that dissemination piece forward. Maybe you have the abilities and, and talents to be able to make, to translate this information in a way to a broader audience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and Michelle, you and I have thought about ways that um, quality improvement, education and training can be implemented at different training levels. And we have some initial ideas. Sure. And maybe we'll start with what does it look like when you're already in the workplace? I think that's a good place to start. And we sort of alluded to that, that you can be seeking out. Perhaps there's some CEUs or learning from other types of disciplines. Maybe you can participate in committee work at your hospital and begin to learn that way or participate in more formal quality improvement trainings within VA. We have the Lean Six Sigma quality improvement trainings and and their similar types of training outside. There's also the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which Mm -hmm. will be in the show notes as well, which has they have their own podcast. They have many resources that uh, you can use to train yourself in these kinds of practices and procedures and yeah. skills. Yeah. If we think about what does it look like in graduate school, not everybody's going to have um, the resources that Lindsay had. But if you're teaching or you're taking a class in research, thinking about well, the research piece is great. What would it look like in a healthcare improvement sort of setting or, mm-hmm. or building those skills within their, your current existing coursework? You don't need necessarily a separate class on quality improvement at the graduate school level, we, we wouldn't say. But if you're if you're taking a, a class on health issues and geropsychology, for example, maybe that part of that class coursework is around thinking about what a quality improvement project could look like in that setting. Yeah, and I was thinking too, graduate programs now most have the professional development mm-hmm. and supervision course that graduate students have to take, and that could be a component in there as well. Exactly. When you get to the internship level, the interns may have an intern lecture series where they hear from many different psychologists in the in the service, and perhaps you can devote one of those lectures to a topic on quality improvement, which is what we are doing locally here. And you can include some articles on quality improvement projects, but there's maybe some for the first time, unless they had it earlier in their training, 
an opportunity for them to do a piece of a quality improvement project. Sometimes you may have only three months with your intern, but maybe one, the first intern of the year can start something and then it can be carried across, Mm -hmm. across interns, across trainees, thinking about how can we make an impact, maybe even in a short time in the clinic, or even just encouraging them, inviting them to ask the questions that are the first step in quality improvement training. Yeah, and this actually makes me think of some of the literature that I've seen in nursing and in medicine, how they're training in quality improvement. And I've seen some places actually have ongoing quality improvement projects where trainees can just, as soon as they come on board, they can just jump right into it. Next, at the fellow level, they're maybe in a better position if they're training all year or if you're on fellowship. Perhaps you have the choice that year of being able to participate in a full year quality improvement project. It may be a bit much to lead one yourself, but perhaps if you have a mentor who is very skilled at quality improvement and the opportunity to do a project over the course of the year, it doesn't have to be a large project. Mm -hmm. One of the projects we're working on this year is just making sure the depression diagnosis shows up in the record if, it, if they really are depressed. And so that makes a big difference in patient care, but it doesn't actually take a lot of time to ultimately do. Or at the fellow level, you may have the opportunity to collaborate with other disciplines directly. Mm-hmm. So maybe there are nurses on the the nursing home unit that you're rotating through, maybe they have a project going that the psychologist can just kind of jump in on and and be a consultant even for a short time. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that you mentioned, Michelle, that it doesn't have to be a large project because quality... Probably shouldn't be at the fellow level. Absolutely. (laughs) You've got enough going on. (laughs) I was just thinking quality improvement projects can be small. I'm thinking of an example of a fellow that I was supervising who did a quality improvement project around a snooze snoozelin cart in long-term care. Snoozelin is this sort of multi-sensory therapy for older adults who have severe dementia. But it's not a medication. It's not a medication. And I've seen places have sort of a snoozelin cart where there's multi-sensory things attached to this cart. Um, You have things for visual stimulation, tactile stimulation. And I've also seen where places have have snoozelin rooms. So it's a whole room set up with this stuff. And in this particular setting, we had a snoozelin cart that wasn't being utilized. Wow. And so her project was around understanding first, you know, why wasn't it being utilized? And was there a way to increase its utilization? Right? Because the hospital already spent the money on this. And it, it, it was a shame that it was collecting dust and not being used to help what it was purchased for. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And so I think it is important, no matter what setting you're working working in, to know what you're being measured on. So there are a lot of healthcare quality things that no one mentions in the interview that, that your program is being rated on. But for example, somebody every month is looking at whether or not we're assessing people's depression or screening for depression and post-traumatic stress. Important things. Mm-hmm. But it, you may not know it until you get to your setting, what is being measured mm-hmm. there and what, what sorts of aims that the setting is is focused on at the time. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really great question to bring up, especially for interns and fellows when you get into um, into your rotations to ask that question. Sometimes it's though these things are sort of hidden in the background and, <laughs> and only the like supervisor will deal with them. Yeah. And, and they sort of are shielding their, their trainees, but maybe we should be more upfront about it and maybe include the trainees in, in that kind of work. Yeah, that's well. a really good idea. <laughs> 
So be sure to check out the show notes because I'm going to include some links to some nice resources. And thank you so much again, Michelle, for coming on the show today and talking to me about quality improvement. We're hoping to improve everyone's quality improvement skills. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you, Lindsay, for having me. That's all for today's episode on the Jero Psychology Podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at the Jero Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes where we talk about suicide and late life, mental health and music and aging, using creativity and life review, and working in a private practice. <laughs>